and it is my great pleasure to introduce to you Tim Callum. He's the senior minister over at Mountain Brook Community Church, uh, down 280, almost to the summit, which is just north of Montgomery for us. And uh, and so thank you for making the journey today uh, to uh, downtown Birmingham. And uh, Tim and I serve on the advisory board at Beeson Divinity School together, and he and his wife Christy have two adult children, and we are delighted uh, that you are here to share a word with us today, Tim. God bless you, brother. Uh, next Monday, uh, coming into town will be the Reverend Zach Hicks. Many of you have already heard that Zach is going to be joining the staff uh, of the Advent, and Zach will be with us both Monday and Tuesday. Zach currently serves at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So hope you can come out for Zach, as well as Rob Sturdy, who will be with us next week, and Bob Flayhart from Oak Mountain Presbyterian. Tim will preach after we stand and sing hymn number 151 in your hymnals. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and merciful Father, with you there is forgiveness. In you there is hope. Speak to us now by your Holy Spirit through your Holy Word. This we ask in the matchless name, the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. grateful for and humbled by the opportunity to be with you today. I have long appreciated the ministry of the Advent in our city, and I am particularly thankful for your providing these Lenten services for our community. Uh, I was amazed to hear, as Andrew said a moment ago, that it's been over 100 years that y'all have graciously uh, opened the doors to our community for this. Uh, to me, the, the representative nature of this service is a powerful picture of the cooperative effort of the body of Christ coming together across denominational lines for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, I invite you to meet me in the gospel of Luke, the 18th chapter. Uh, here we find a story which Jesus tells that I think in many ways defines true spirituality and strikes at the heart of the Lenten season. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. American playwright Arthur Miller once said that in every good drama, there's something that makes a person say, hey, that's me. 
Jesus tells stories to provide windows into our souls, or if you prefer, mirrors to our lives, helping us to see something about God and something about ourselves, something about the world around us and the world to come. So I want us to consider in the moments that we have today, to consider the the context of the story, the characters of the story, the contrast and the conclusion to which Jesus builds. Here in verse 9, Luke sets the context and makes it clear to whom Jesus is speaking, which gives us insight into why he's telling this story. He's speaking to those who are self-righteous and judgmental. These two characteristics often go hand in hand. The first characteristic, that of self-righteousness, naturally leads to the second, an air of superiority, an air of smugness. It's easy to find fault in others and miss it in ourselves. After all, oftentimes we think the problem is, is them, that group, those people out there. A number of years ago, the Times of London sent an inquiry to a number of famous authors, including G.K. Chesterton. They they simply asked this question, what is wrong with the world today? Chesterton's reply was succinct, dear sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. You see, he recognized, as should we, that if the world was to change, it would begin with him. And it must begin with us. The characters in Jesus' story are introduced immediately in verse 10. They are a Pharisee and a tax collector. To understand how subversive and how radical Jesus' story was then and is now, we must set aside our 21st century Western mindset and understand how Jesus' audience would have perceived these two characters. The Pharisees, we see us the bad guys, the ones who are out to trap Jesus, but not in Jesus' day. You see, they represented the pinnacle of Judaism fastidious in their observance of the law, highly regarded, highly respected. In fact, when the crowd gathered at the Sermon of the Mount, uh, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They must have thought, well, then there's no hope for us. Uh, When it comes to doing good, nobody does it better than a Pharisee. Then there's the tax collector dishonest, traitor, in cahoots with Rome on the take. Anything he collected over and above would go into his own pocket to make him rich. So they would think Pharisee good, tax collector bad. But with this story, Jesus is about to turn things upside down and to, as he so often did, defy the conventional religious thought of his day. And so for the sake of time, we'll draw a brief contrast between the two. Our text says that the Pharisees stood, probably in a place of prominence. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 that they loved to pray standing in a synagogue and on street corners to be seen. The tax collector stood off at a distance. There's the Pharisee, eyes looking around, comparing himself to others. He's condescending. Compare the tax collector, eyes down, looking within. He's contrite. Some translations read that the Pharisee prayed to himself or about himself. He begins, God, I thank you. But then his prayer sounds much more self-congratulatory than it does God-centered, doesn't it? 
The Pharisee bragged about his merits. The tax collector begged for God's mercy. The Pharisee said, I I fast twice a week. You see, Israel would be called to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. For the Pharisees, they would typically fast once a week, but not this super-righteous Pharisee. He fasted twice a week, and and he tithed everything, but he missed the heart of it. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus said, Woe to you Pharisees! You tithe mint and rue and every herb, but you neglect justice and the love of God. The Pharisees' prayer seemed to be fraught with self-congratulatory comments about his merits. The tax collector's prayer is so real, so honest, so refreshing, so freeing. Pastor John Westfall was assigned the prayer of confession at his church one Sunday. It had been a particularly terrible week for him in which family tensions had dominated and he wasn't feeling very spiritual. Did did y'all know that that happens to the clergy from time to time? He did the sensible thing, and he wrote a vague, generic, religious-sounding confession to be read. And, and, but sitting in front of the congregation that Sunday morning, he fell far from people, and he fell far from God. So he got up to read his written confession when he says that his brain shorted out and he lost his presence of mind. And instead of reading his carefully written safe prayer, he prayed this, Lord, you know that this has been a terrible week. I've been a jerk at home. I was so unloving toward my wife that I put my fist through the bedroom wall while we were arguing. I need your forgiveness. Amen. And he sat down. He writes that you could hear a pin drop. I imagine you could. Something happened that morning. Immediately following the service, he says, three contractors offered to repair the wall. (laughs) But more importantly... He says, I was freed to worship in a fresh way. I was able to experience the healing that comes when we allow ourselves to be recipients of grace. By the way, he says that he left the hole there as a reminder of his need for God's mercy and forgiveness. You see, this Pharisee was prideful. The tax collector was penitent. The Pharisee's heart was filled with hubris. The tax collector had a heart of humility. D.A. Carson, an outstanding scholar and theologian in his own right, was interviewing Carl F.H. Henry, one of the preeminent theologians of the latter half of the 20th century. Dr. Carson asked Dr. Henry how, with all of his renown and with all of his accomplishments, he remained so humble Dr. Henry simply responded with characteristic humility, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? Dr. John Stott once stated, nothing cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. Dr. Stott goes on to say, it is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. The Pharisee said prayers, but you get the sense that he never really prayed. He had some God talk, 
but he never really talked to God. I think there are at least two fundamental flaws in his thinking. He thought, first of all, I'm not like these other people. Yes, you're very much like them. He thought, I'm better than this tax collector. No, you're really not at all. You see, there are basically two types of people. There are those who know that they are sinners, admit it, and find mercy at the cross. And there are those who refuse to admit it and deny it and miss the mercy that could be theirs. I believe that from the Pharisee we learn that that no one is so good that they are above the need for God's mercy and grace. And from the tax collector we learn that there is no one so bad that they are beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace. You see, the gospel is good news to the undeserving. The symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not scales. The heart of the tax collector must be our heart. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The great expositor Charles Haddon Spurgeon prayed this each time he entered the pulpit. I do not take lightly the enormous privilege it is to stand in this pulpit. I don't know if you know this or not, but right here, there, there is a, a plaque and engraved upon this plaque are these words, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. As a minister of the gospel, it is my duty and it is my delight to preach the gospel. To declare to you the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. You cannot appreciate how good the good news is until you have come to terms with how bad the bad news is. Seminary professor Jack Miller once said, Cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. That is the essence of the gospel. That which we do today and in this season of Lent is not done to impress God with what we do, but to reflect on what he has done. Any sacrifice we make points to the ultimate sacrifice that he made on our behalf. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Self-righteousness is no righteousness at all. Only in the righteousness of Christ do we find hope and do we find rest from our futile attempts to be good enough. Those who humbly seek mercy will find it. Ephesians 2 says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Be merciful to me, a sinner, though a desperate cry is not a despairing cry. For the one to whom we call to for mercy is rich in mercy. Rejoice, my friends, because God is not stingy with his mercy. But we must first come to terms with the fact that you and I were not a little sick. We were dead. We were not temporarily disoriented. We were lost, helpless, hopeless, had God not intervened. The text of our hymn today was written by Martin Luther. Luther also made... These observations. God receives none but those who are forsaken. 
restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but those who are blind, life to none but those who are dead. He does not give saintliness to any but sinners, nor wisdom to any but fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. Therefore, no arrogant saint can be material for God. As I was preparing for today, I was reminded of the 33 Chilean miners. Perhaps you remember their story. Trapped some 2,300 feet beneath the earth's surface for 69 days. They were helpless and hopeless unless someone came from above. And someone did. As a capsule, the phoenix was lowered down from above. But, but they each had to decide to enter that capsule one by one to, to trust that it would carry them to safety and to life. Now, they could have looked at that and they could have said, that's a way. Perhaps there's another way. No. The point is not that there was just a way. The fact that there was any way at all was thrilling news to them. Too good to be true news. Too great to be missed news. And so it is with us. When we were hopeless and we were helpless, God intervened. Our salvation came from above. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet those helpless, hopeless sinners, Christ died for us. But the miracle of salvation is not just what I'm saved from. It's what I'm saved to. It's not just a get out of hell free card. No, it's not less than that, but it is so much more than that. You see, very simply put, mercy means I don't get what I do deserve, and grace means that I do get what I don't deserve. And what is that? Well, for one, you and I receive adoption. God not only saves me, but he adopts me. He makes me his child. He welcomes me into his family. He invites me to dine at his table John chapter 1 verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Galatians 4, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. Adoption is a powerful picture of the gospel and God's grace toward us. A pastor, a friend of mine in another state, went to redo his will. When he sat down with the lawyer, the lawyer said, I see that you have three biological children and an adopted daughter. He said, you need to know that if you make changes to your will, state law stipulates this one fundamental principle. You can write out your biological children, but you cannot write out your adopted child. 
Adoption is secure. You and I have been adopted into the family of God and nothing can change that. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we join today the Apostle Paul, uh, John in declaring with great joy and great confidence, see what love the Father has for us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is who we are. Amen and amen.